So Silicon Lee is a community organization. We were founded in 2011, and we're serving Berlin's Central Innovation District. So our mission is to help international entrepreneurs, founders, and companies succeed here in Berlin, all while helping to minimize any kind of negative impact to our local community. And as part of this mission, we're launching this new event series, Unplugged, which we hope to bring inspiring people, founders, leaders, politicians, to share stories and ask them questions that maybe they wouldn't get asked in other venues. We're really excited and humbled to have Mitch Landrieu here. And um, I'd like to kick off the discussion talking about community. Um, we're sitting here in a startup campus, in a co-working space, and the word community gets banded about a lot as kind of a buzzword. And sometimes I feel like it's a really fluffy buzzword. And as a mayor, you dealt with real communities, real people. And I'm curious, in your opinion, how you define a community and what makes for a strong, vibrant, active, connected community. Well, first of all, thank you. It's nice to see you. Thank you all for having me. It's nice to be here in Berlin. We're here with my wife, Cheryl. Uh, thank GMF for sponsoring us. And, and I'm thrilled to be here. I, uh, this is the first time I've been to Berlin. I went to the gates today, which were, as you know, a historic site uh, for so many of us. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. I was the, just to give you some background, I'm one of nine kids. I have eight brothers and sisters. We have 38 nieces and nephews. I'm from the city of New Orleans, which is, if uh, you haven't been there, you should come. It's quite a lot of fun. It's hot, really, really, really hot, <laughs> just a fair warning. Um, but it's a very deep, rich, multicultural place, always has been. We celebrated our 300th anniversary this year. We're one of the only places, I think we're the only place in America that at one time, uh, because we existed actually before the United States became the United States of America, had the flags of... Spain flying over it, and then France. Huge German influence, huge influence, as you know, because of slavery, about the African slave trade that came from Senegal and Gambia into New Orleans, and we have been, we're a port town. So New Orleans is very much unlike the rest of the state that New Orleans lives in, which is Louisiana, which is a deep south, very red, very conservative state. That is not the city of New Orleans. New Orleans is very, you know, kind of anything goes, lots of fun, diverse, tolerant, uh, and very, very forward-leaning. I served in the legislature for 16 years, representing a district inside of the city of New Orleans. And then I became lieutenant governor of the entire state, which gave me the opportunity to really get involved deeply in urban, rural issues, what it felt like to represent people of completely different um, faiths, races, et cetera, et cetera, and tried to really find a way to, to unify very, very diverse folks geographically. And then, after Katrina hit, and I know that all of you remember it, you remember the horrific pictures, and thank you all for your thoughts and your prayers and, and what you've sent our way. The whole city was destroyed, and we had to rebuild the yeah. city. And out of great catastrophe came... Um, extensive new responsibility and with that opportunities. Now, when I say that, when something gets destroyed, you have to build it back and you have to think about what you're gonna build back. The initial 
feeling is to build it back just the way it was. That's always a mistake because they're all things to correct. And when you start to course correct, you start thinking about, well, where were we before the bad thing happened and what, what do we want to put back? So you know that a lot of people were forced out of New Orleans. We wanted to invite everybody back and then thousands and thousands of young people came from across the country to come to New Orleans to help. Right around that time, the idea of the creative class started to move around. IT started to become a sector. The tech companies, you know, some of them were very mature. Lots of young people from across the country that otherwise would have gone to work for Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan Chase or gone to law school, decided to come down and volunteer. And because New Orleans had kind of riveted into the nation's uh, mind, a lot of those young people started to stay in New Orleans. And it started to create a very new kind of New Orleans. Now, we're still authentically what we always have been. We're a majority African-American city. We're very, very diverse racially and ethnically. But a whole bunch of new young people started to come. And the idea of community began to take different shapes and forms. I don't think the community is really a fluffy term. It is a term that moves around, but essentially it means a group of people that find common interest and common person, common purpose, share common values, and actually spend time together, commune, lots of people, as opposed to living in isolation. Too many people these days live in isolation. They don't know each other, they don't talk to each other, they never share time with each other. A community can be a business community, it can be a residential community, it can be a faith community, it can be a playground community. It can be when people come together and begin to share. And this notion that we were talking about earlier, about this new thing that I started called e pluribusunum, out of many we are one, it actually speaks to the need for us to actually share what it is that we have and think about what we could produce from our individual talents and, and have the sum of all of our parts is greater than its individual parts. And so I think community is just a rich social fabric. It's mostly self-chosen mm -hmm. by people. Sometimes it's self-imposed, but most of the time you can't force people to work together or to play together or to love together if they don't like it. Um, and it is a, it's a self-described space where people come together and share. I think that's, yeah, I think that's really important. Um, the idea of people solving the common problems together, I think creates a richer, more connected community. When you all kind of come from the same history or the same background that then unites you in this, a common mission. Um, that's where I see the richest communities. I think you know well, the base level of community can be people in proximity to one another. That's the baseline, but I think the, the real connections start happening when you're actually solving problems and working together. I think that's right, but you know it's a different thing. When, when um, I'm 58 years old, <laughs> and when I started working, we basically worked in hierarchical, hierarchical organizations. There was a boss, somebody was on the bottom, there were mid-level managers. We all kind of worked in spaces, we had offices, and the trajectory was like this. You work in a completely different world. Um, technology creates the opportunity not even to be anywhere around the same space. All these devices that we use in the technology, but yet, you all find yourselves here. Yeah. And you start to think, well gee, if I don't, if I don't have to work in that kind of environment and I can work on my own, I don't really like being by myself. I don't really want to have my own HR system, my own finance system, my own whatever it is that you need. Can we share? But you don't have to share in the same kind of organizational structure that you had before. You can, you can for lack of a better term, um, kind of share in, in a more democratic space 
where everybody's occupying a little bit less space than they used to, having lots of common areas that everybody shares for reducing your cost and yet being in proximity to people that would lend more opportunity to share better ideas. And I think that's a tech economy has helped kind of create that space sharing life that is really kind of not something that I grew up in, but a, a younger generation is, and that's what you're doing. Cool. I thank you for giving a little bit of background to New Orleans as well and explaining uh, how it's so unique. Um, I think I'd, I, in your book you mentioned, uh, I'll quote here, New Orleans mirrors a map of the world. And there I think you were talking to the diversity of New Orleans, all the influences that, that made it what it, what it is. Um, in my years here now in Berlin, I'd like to draw a parallel and say I think that's also something that makes Berlin really unique is that it has a really deep multicultural background. People from all over the world are coming here. Uh, we say the same thing about Berlin that you just said about New Orleans, that Berlin is not Germany. Berlin is something else, right? So I think there's a, a, a lot of parallels we can draw between the, the two cities. And I, I mean, I, I think I know your answer to this, but... How much does the diversity in, in a city, the, all these different influences, measure up to the city's success as? Well, forgive my view here, but it's, it's uniquely American, um, I thought, but evidently not so. Um, I, I grew up completely and totally immersed in the notion that diversity is a strength, that it's not a weakness that essentially the more people you can find who are different from you, racially different, spiritually different, ethnically different, ideologically different, and the more ideas you share, you can actually create something brand new that could never have been done just by looking at each other over, over the hedges. New Orleans music, New Orleans food, New Orleans architecture is all kind of a mishmash of lots of different cultures and colors, and the idea about diversity being a strength is not to take cultures and force them to become bland, but actually to let each individual piece become rich, become more colorful, become better, and then fuse them together to create something new. The art form of jazz actually is a reflection of that theory of life. All of the food, we have spectacular food in New Orleans. We are known, we like to eat. Um, you know, the, this, you've, you've heard of this, this um, food source that we have called gumbo. You know, if you look at the origins of all of the ingredients, you've got a German piece of it, you've got Senegal and Gambia, you've got African roots, you've got Spanish, you've got French, it all comes together and nobody really kind of thinks about where it came from. Essentially, that can be true about other systems as well. And it's easy to use muse and food because it never offends anybody <laughs> when you talk about it. But um, that notion, though, is being challenged quite overtly now in politics these days that diversity, in fact, is not a strength, that it's a weakness, that we're actually better when we're separate, and that it's okay not to come together, that one of us should just kind of try to find a way to be better and more supreme. And that kind of notion leads to some very, very dangerous political uh, backlash. You see white nationalism, white supremacy, not just in the United States, you see it in Germany, you see it in France, you see it now happening uh, in other countries as well. That's just, to me, a very um, dangerous, outcome of people trying to stay so isolated and, and keeping people away based on race, creed, color, religion, sexual orientation. And one of the things that, that I found in the eight years that I was mayor is that if you wanted a city that was economically vibrant, especially in the tech industry, you better have an open, tolerant community. 
that is a whole lot less judgmental about all of those issues that keep us apart because smart, smart folks can move anywhere. And they're not going to go hang out, you know, in, in cities that are not tolerant and they're not diverse. I mean, I think the, I want to call everybody here young people. The young <laughs> generations of workers that are actually choosing where to work and where to create wealth are actually doing it in places where they feel comfortable and open. And, uh, and I think that when you see some more of these oppressive laws um, that are being passed, not only in the United States but other areas, it's going to force people into more multicultural centers like New Orleans, like Berlin. Paris is another great example, and there are a lot of other fantastic cities around the world where the best knowledge is moving to, not because the smartest people are necessarily there, but the smartest people go there because they feel more comfortable and more free to do what it is that they think is the right way to do it and the, and the way to live based on what they think you know, their own values are. So the flip side of that, though, is when you have this influx of talent and young people and tech companies, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about the problems that can create. You, know, you look at San Francisco, Austin, Texas, Seattle, New York, and now here in Berlin, there's talk about is this much new money, new industry, new tech companies uh, actually good for the existing community? And as part of our mission, we're trying to help people integrate better into their local community. But maybe you have advice, sure. ideas about how um, tech, the tech community can better foster their inclusivity in their, in their local communities or create more of a positive impact on the cities that they're well, going to. Well, that's a great question, and, it, and it is, it's a real question that I'd, I'd like to address this way. I'd like to incorporate the tech community in something that's brought more broadly called the creative class and your distant cousins, the cultural class. Musicians, writers, filmmakers, architects, tech folks, et cetera, et cetera. Hackers. Hack well, <laughs> hackers, of course. Everybody's included. And I want, I want to put this in proper perspective for you because I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. When I became mayor of the city, as I said, the city had been destroyed. We had, when the water went away, 17 feet of water over a long period of time, the city had to get dewatered. Every house had been flooded. People came back, and those people that had insurance or found other wealth were able to rebuild their houses, but many were not. So we had 40,000 blighted properties, some commercial structures, some residential structures. And a blighted piece of property is essentially a really kind of a not functional physical thing that has gotten left behind. And when nobody comes and takes care of the property, it falls down, it becomes a fire hazard, it's very unseemly, it causes property values to go down, and you have an awful time because nobody wants to move into your city, there are no property taxes, the city files bankruptcy, and then all of a sudden you have Detroit. Or you have New York in 1976, or you have New Orleans post-Katrina. Those are awful problems to have. Awful, awful, awful. And so what you have to do is get rid of blight. That's a tough problem. It's a very serious problem, and the way you get rid of blight is to have more people move into the city and invest in the neighborhood. So now what happens if you get to be really successful and everybody wants to come live in your city? That's a much better problem to have <laughs> yeah. than the one of what to do with blighted properties and having no tax base and having nobody live in your city. So in this sense, this is a natural outgrowth of an economy that's growing, but then, of course, like every thing, every good thing, requires you to manage it so it doesn't turn into a bad thing. And in that context, the issue of gentrification comes up. It's most acutely being felt in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco. 
So lots of success, lots of businesses paying a lot of people a lot of money. So what are they doing with that money? They're going in and they're buying every piece of property and what's happening to the people that, that used to live there, they're now being moved out. And the prices are getting so high that nobody can leave there. So you're creating, not diversity, but you're creating exclusion mm. for people that made money in the tech industry. And you have to think about that and because it requires planning. Now, this gets you into a whole bunch of really kind of not mind-numbingly painful local issues that you may not want to talk about, but there are essentially three things that you can do. You can have the government come in and impose on everybody market rate rents, which most people think is not a good idea because the free market doesn't have anything to, to say about it. Or you basically could kind of let it go and the market will take care of itself, which is going to, you know, really force gentrification more quickly. Or you could come in with something in between, where the government, in, in partnership with the private sector, with willing partners, willing partners, and that would be everybody who's making money, who wants to move into places, says, you know, we want to have a culturally rich community. And so we're going to have set-asides in buildings that get some kind of public subsidy to keep, to make sure that there's um, subsidized rent for folks that wouldn't otherwise afford it. You have opening and welcoming communities to make sure that you move into a community in a way that you don't have to move other people out. And you have to work it because here's the, back to your original question. Who is in my community? You set the rules for who's in your community. And if you're open to making sure that you have not only an ethnically diverse community but an economically diverse community, then the way you plan your neighborhood and the way you plan the schools and the way you plan the play playgrounds because everybody, not everybody, but lots of people get married and have kids and you gotta have places to play and you gotta have parks for the dogs and you've gotta have fire, you've gotta have police. How you design your community is gonna be easier uh, if you have a sense of what that is rather than the, the, the city trying to impose that on you. And you actually don't have to wait for the mayor of the city to actually ordain this for you. Your community can help identify that for the city and bring that to them and help them what we call zone with zoning issues, which is essentially government regulation that, that either allows you to do things or, not, or, or doesn't allow you to do stuff. And you have to think through that and you have to say, what are our values? Mm -hmm. And what, what does community mean to us? And what actually is diversity that we think is valuable to us? Now, that can get overly burdensome too. You have the refugee crisis, you have immigration that's you know, on the top of everybody's agenda. People say we want to be open. Other people say we want to be closed. How much is too much? Where, where are we in terms of being afraid of other people that don't look like us, that can be vilified by politicians on the, on the right or not fully understood by politicians on the left? Those are, those are issues that are really worth bringing your community together to have discussions about so you can be forthright and realistic about them as well. And essentially, the bottom line, and I don't mean to make this more simple than it is, but you have to choose your community and who it is based on the values that you think are important and how you want to live. And the rules that you, the rules that you create ought to be consistent with what you say your values are. In other words, you ought, those things ought to be integrity with each other, and oftentimes they're not. Many times we speak one way and then we actually do another. And I think you, that's worth some discussion because it's not an easy solution to find because there are lots of different opinions about it. Yeah, I think it's a really difficult solution that a lot of cities, you know, nowadays are facing with, you know, the millennials moving back into cities, 
tech companies looking more to establish themselves in city centers rather than out, outside in the suburbs. And uh, I really like the idea of building a value-based yeah, system that we can then all agree to to then build the city on top of um, and create that sense of community. Well, there is one thing There is one thing happening that you should be aware of that I'm not sure that any of us could control, but before many of you were born, um, after, after World War II and then the Korean War, uh, in America at least, and this may, have, may be true here, um, many, many people left the cities. In the United States and the South, it was essentially because of race and, and a bunch of other things, and moved into suburbs and then to rural areas. So I, I can't pinpoint the exact time, but sometime around 1970, 75, that started to reverse. And now that has been completely reversed, and everybody's moving into the cities now. I was reading just today that I think in 2050, we're going to have potentially 9.5 to 10 billion people that are going to be on the planet. We have about 7 billion now. India is going to be bigger than China. Uh, you know, Europe, I think, is going to continue to grow. The United States certainly is. And most of those human beings are going to live in just a few places. So we're going to have to begin to understand that we have to get better at sharing, you know, better at spaces, how we build, how, how we use energy and water and all of those kinds of things. Because the things we usually kill each other about, you know, when you get tired and hungry and scared, money, land, food, water, those are really kind of the, kind of the things that have caused historically us you know, power to, uh, for, for countries to fight each other. And, yeah. uh, and I think that if you're forward thinking enough and you think a lot about it, which we never do, by the way, because we always just think about tomorrow, we're terrible at thinking about, we're terrible about taking pain today for something we're not going to benefit from so that we can save ourselves later. We're all bad at that all over the world. We should get a lot better at that. And, uh, and we have a lot of pressures that are coming that we can see. Climate change is one of them that's right in front of us. People keep ignoring it. It's right there. Um, we're already late, so we got to think about that. Immigration and, and, and uh, refugee crisis and things of people moving across continents because of pressures that we have are going to continue to put pressure on us. If we have another financial meltdown, that will do it as well. And the idea of resilience, being ready to sustain something bad that comes your way, is really, really important. I don't know what's going to come your way that's going to be bad, but it's going to be something. <laughs> It's because why do we know that? Because it always happens. Yeah. You just can't exactly tell when. Yeah. And so when we build back communities, we want to build them back strong so that when something bad happens, you know, you're actually able to withstand it a little bit better than if you're not prepared for it at all. Yeah, that touches on a uh, topic I wanted to discuss, uh, this, this rebuilding of cities. Um, obviously, New Orleans has gone through it much more recently, but another parallel I'd like to draw to Berlin is we're still arguably going through this rebuilding from the fall of the Berlin Wall. If you look at the cranes around the city, it's incredible. we're still rebuilding as well. And It's noticeable. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, the first thing you notice when you come here is how many new buildings are being built, and that's a sign that a city's actually growing. When you don't see any cranes, that's yeah. not a good thing. Yeah. And, and that's noticeable as well. I'm, and, and there's a lot of talk now as well within the, the government and the technology sector about smart cities. So I'm curious, um, you know, given the rebuilt, rebuilding of a, of a city, you know, it often comes from tragedy, which is obviously really unfortunate. Nobody wants to go through that, but it's also an opportunity it maybe is. to implement some of these forward-thinking ideas. Was there anything that you implemented in New Orleans that 
falls under this category of future smart yeah. city kind of technology, or was there something maybe you wish you could have done that? It was a combination. Of, we weren't able to do everything we wanted to do, but certainly when we when New Orleans was felled by Katrina, we had to rebuild all the hospitals. We had to rebuild all of the schools. We had to rebuild the airport. We had to re we had to <laughs> retrofit all of the buildings. And when we did that, the idea was don't put it back with old technology. Put it in with new technology. Don't build it back so that if a storm comes, it's going to blow it down. Think of the three little pigs. Y'all know that story? Yeah. All right. Don't, don't let the wolf blow your house down. Build it stronger. Build it better. Build it with more useful material. And, you know, by the way, you might want to build it high because the water's going to come in and you're going to get wet. Oh, and oh, by the way, all your electrical stuff, you probably don't want to put it in the basement. You want to put it in the roof. And oh, by the way, you might want to have resilient and redundant electrical systems you know, in places that the water or the wind can too, too. And oh, by the way, the storm's really going to be a Category 5 and blow in at 150 miles an hour, so don't build it to 100 mile an hour strength. And oh, by the way, the levees used to be this high, now they need to be this high, those kinds of things. We also, just from a transportation perspective, when I got there, for, just for biking, we didn't have any bike lanes. You know, people wanted to bike, and there was no place safe to do it. And so we went from, I think, having three miles of bike lanes to having like 130 by the time oh. I left. Most of the buildings downtown, because we, we concocted a resilience plan that said we really wanted to meet the Paris climate goals, even though the United States would pull out of it, was thinking about ways to do it. New technology, one of the things we thought about that we could not do in New Orleans, because we're below sea level, is to plant all of the electric lines underground, you know, which would really protect them. Um, the presidential debates in the United States start tonight. There are lots of people running. And the first round's going to start tonight. There'll be 10 on yep. the stage, I think, if you want to wake up and watch at 3 o'clock your time, 3 a.m. Um, but it's in Miami. And so the city of Miami, like the city of New Orleans and New York and Orlando and a number of others, are cities that are really on the front lines of sea level rise. Yeah. And in Louisiana, we actually just don't only have sea level rise, but the coast is disappearing, and then the marsh is shrinking. So we have to think about how we actually keep the land that we're on, or New Orleans or the South Louisiana, as you know, it will go away. I think that there are places all over the world, the Netherlands being one of them, Rotterdam and, and others, that are actually having to think through how you rebuild cities stronger and better um, so that you don't suffer the fate that we talked about before. Cool. Thanks. Um, I'd, we're about halfway through a discussion now, and I'd like to switch the topic a little bit um, okay. <clears throat> and talk a little bit about misinformation. Um, so you, uh, in your book, you mentioned that you lived through the rise of David uh, Duke, the infamous, infamous uh, politician who was a previous, uh, I mean, I wouldn't even call him a politician, but a previous KKK grand wizard, uh, self-proclaimed white supremacist Nazi real. Um, I don't want to use a polite word here, but uh, <laughs> not the guy you'd invite over for a Sunday dinner, right? right. Um, and you likened his uh, campaign to uh, the rise of Donald Trump, and both uh, ran on the spread of lies and misinformation. Um, and, you know, in your book you mentioned this, and I think it's totally right, this, the, this idea of spreading mis misinformation is not a new concept. It's the same thing that led to the rise of the Nazi party here in Germany. Um, and it's the same methodology um, that led to the, uh, 
staying power of these Confederate statues that you fought so hard to, to take down in, in New Orleans. Um, and here being that we're in this tech campus and a lot of the misinformation is spread all along today's technology platforms, I'm really curious what you think we can do as a tech industry to hold ourselves better to account, account to this identifying and um, notifying people of this misinformation and how we can also help the tech companies help themselves to stop these lies from spreading. It, is yeah. there something we can, we can do there? Well, yeah, first of all, um, to be purposely respectful, um, Sean and I went by the Holocaust Memorial today. And that is a reminder every day about how horrible human beings can be to each other when we begin to think that one or some of us are better than somebody else because of race, creed, color, national origin, etc., sexual orientation. And this notion of, of white supremacy or nation, white nationalism um, is not something that should be countenanced wherever it raises its head anywhere in the world. So when I was a young kid in college, I actually was, came here. I was in Poznan, Poland. Uh, I, a couple months later, was in Germany, and then I went to Auschwitz um, and, you know, stood in, in that space, in that moment where, where those atrocities occurred. And I remember thinking that, you know, if this happened once, it could kind of happen again. Um, and although, you, you know, it's not great to compare tragedies, you know, slavery in the United States was our nation's original sin and one that we've never in my opinion, appropriately apologized for, or figured out how to redesign the system that is currently designed that continues to do that thing. And when people don't remember those situations well and tell wrong stories about why they happened or how they happened, you open yourself up to repeating them again. And sometimes in a very heated political environment, where people are talking about, and, and you, you guys have many strain, different strains to your politics than we in America. Right now we've got the progressives, we've got kind of the middle of the rotors, and then we have the conservatives. Those things are being stretched in the United States and you have them here, but on the extremes, the alt-right and the conservative white nationalists start looking scarily like just regular conservatives, people that may have a difference of opinion about whether government should be big or small on immigration, et cetera. And this, this creepy notion of white supremacy that has led us to really, really bad things in the world have to be put down. And in that context, we have to make sure that the information that we learn about our history is accurate and true, and that our spaces, our history books, or however it is that we learn is, is, is full of information that's fair and that it's accurate and that is not you know, made up. Now, we learn and we communicate now differently than what we did when I was a kid. It was all a book. Now, it's, it's all technology. I'm not enough of a tech expert to tell you what the process is that you need to use to root out lies, alternative facts, not being, not being able to really determine whether or not what you're looking at on this, 
is actually real, but you got to figure that out. Because if you don't, at some point in time, the government will come in and regulate it for you. And there's going to be a big fight about this. Now, in this regard, tech's yeah. not a whole lot different from the banking industry, and it's not a whole lot different from the telecommunications industry, that when you get too big to fail, or you get so big that you run everything, or you get so big that you can't get checked, or you get so big that you can do whatever you want, and there's no competition, at some level, the public good has to be protected. And finding that right balance, you know, from my perspective as a government person, I would prefer that to come in partnership with the private sector. If you don't figure out how to do it, somebody's going to figure out how to do it for you because abuses will always be curbed. Yeah. Um, they'll be curbed by a popular uprising or they'll be curbed by government intervention. And I think that you have to self-police on those kinds of things. And to the extent that you can do that, we're going to be in better shape. And if you don't, then you know, it, it, it'll happen for you. Yeah. Do you think the government can move fast enough to police no. that sort of stuff? No. It's no, always but, the but problem, if they right? have to, they will. <laughs> yeah. So no, I mean, they're not, they're not the first and best choice. But in partnership with the private sector yeah. that, are, that are focused and not trying to get away with anything, you know, actually working towards common good and common purpose, open communication, honest communication, real facts, so that the public can make a decision about what they want to do commercially and what they want to do politically is always the best goal. How to get there is, I, I think it's very, very complicated. I, I don't think we'll figure that out yet. Okay, we'll leave that to the Democrats to de we'll debate let, we'll tonight. We'll leave huh? that to whoever's <laughs> going to be the president. But, but you saw, you know, with, with, with Facebook, and, and we've got a lot of stuff going on, you know, in Congress right now, giving away private information or allowing people to have access to it, cybersecurity, the Russian intervention in the American elections through cyber security, all of those things are going to challenge us a lot. And, you know, it's going to be a tech world. I mean, that's the world that we're going to live in going forward. We're never not going to be tech again. I mean, one day we're not going to wake up and go back to the landline. Did you all see that great YouTube video with those young kids trying to use an old phone? They didn't know what it was. They thought it was a spaceship. It was hysterical. <laughs> Like a rotary phone? Or, yeah. yeah. They had these yeah. two kids, and the, one of their parents said, a, they, they didn't know what it was, and they kept looking at it like it was a Martian or a spaceship, and they didn't know how it worked. <laughs> you know, we're never, ever going back to that again. No. Cool. Um, so you touched on it briefly there. I had this uh, also in my notes here about your, your visit to Auschwitz as an eye-opening moment for the power of uh, memorials to tragedies. And I think we could probably both agree that in the U.S. we need maybe a bit more of that, of looking at really reflecting on slavery, on Native American genocide, on Japanese internment, all these sort of things in, in more powerful ways, a bit like uh, in Auschwitz. Um, you mentioned also your trip to the, the Holocaust Memorial here, which um, is an interesting story because you know, it is a really powerful monument there behind the American embassy uh, here in Berlin. Uh, really kind of striking when you're inside it. It's somber. It's, it's very uh, impactful. But we've had some problems here in Berlin with people disrespecting it, climbing on it, just using it as a photo opportunity, this sort of thing. And so I'm curious how we keep these messages relevant, especially to a younger generation that's getting more and more distanced from the actual events. And how do we make these memorials have the right kind of impact on, on younger generations as well? Well, that's, I, you know, I, I was told for the first time today that, that um, you know, sometimes young kids who know any better, you know, jump on top of the memorial and that it's inappropriate. You know, hopefully their parents can do a better job explaining to them, you know, exactly what that is. But, 
the issue about memorials and monuments is not just about how to commemorate, but how not to commemorate our past. One of the really moving things about the way that Germany has dealt with the Holocaust was a recognition of its role in it and making sure that there's a, a reconciliation pathway out of it, much like South Africa. The United States actually has not really done that. And I'm interested in the United States walking that walk. Um, we had slavery, the Civil War ended slavery, then there was Reconstruction where African Americans were invited back into the system and then shortly thereafter, it just got completely undone. And when that happened, the people that actually lost the war actually seized the public spaces and told the story as though they didn't do it. That's not really an I'm sorry, do you forgive me? That's like, well, I can't believe we didn't win, but we're still in control and you still are less than. That's not a way to, to do it. And in, a, and in a community that's primarily African-American, to force African-Americans to walk by a monument you know, would be akin to, I don't know, not having the Holocaust Memorial, but having a number of different statues to the generals that actually promoted, you know, the reasons why the Holocaust existed. You can see how perverted that is. It seems absurd that here. Is. Yeah. It, just is, it seems so absurd that you would never think about it here. But actually, in the south of the United States of America, there are 3,000 of those. So the first thing we have to do is learn our history correctly and remember how to use our public spaces to tell the story that needs to be told, not so that we revere what happened, but always remember it so that we'll never repeat it. That's the more important thing about it. And so there are two things. It's not just the monuments. The monuments that are up in public spaces represent the values of the people that live there. And if your value is, well, the Holocaust wasn't a big deal, so we don't need to have a, 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 a a memorial to that, but we can actually give adulation to the people that caused it to happen, that's not a great value, and that's not what we want to be. And so if you just took down the monuments and you didn't change the hearts and minds of the people that actually put them up in the South, then, then you got a problem. And in all of our communities, uh, especially in the South, we have to do a better job of that with the issue of race. Now, every country has their own issues. We kind of thought in America we were past this, but now post-President Obama, you have the rise of President Trump. Not everybody that voted for President Trump is a racist. Lots of people voted for him because they felt disenfranchised and forgotten by the Democrats. And if the Democrats forget him again, they'll lose. But there are some people who voted for President Trump and who, who are similar to the people that voted for David Duke who actually espouse this notion of white nationalism and white supremacy. I don't exactly know how many they are, but they're enough to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> and they're enough to know that if you leave it unabated, that this sense of nationalism will permeate the entire world, not just the United States of America, because you see it happening right now. You see it in Italy. And it's not a good, it's not a good look. It's not a good theory. It's not a good philosophy. It's not a good governing principle. And it will take us to a place that we should never, ever go back to. As I've said, there's lots of room in liberal democracies to debate about war and peace, to debate about economics, to debate about tech to debate about a whole bunch of stuff, but one of the things we shouldn't be debating about is whether white supremacy should be the ruling philosophy of a governing party in any liberal democracy in the world, right? I agree. So your public spaces ought to reflect that view Great. in, 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 its, in, in all of its richness. Thanks. I'm going to throw another non sequitur at you because uh, if I... There I, was a non sequitur in there already? <laughs> yeah. uh, I've tried to kind of, you know... 
tie a thread through all the questions, <laughs> but I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask you this one, so you'll, right. uh, the crowd will have to indulge me. Um, you almost missed out on a career in politics to chase dreams of being an actor. Um, so I also was on stage in high school really? and in college. Well, we, the, um, the, not the, as, yeah. in, <laughs> as many leading roles as, uh, as you mentioned in your book, unfortunately. I was a very bad singer. I think that, uh, you know, disqualified me for some of those leading musical parts. But I'm really curious, do you regret giving up this passion? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I'm, I'm thrilled that I married my wife and we have five fantastic children. And I've had a wonderful career as a, as a lawyer and as a legislator. But when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a professional actor. Uh, I was a pretty good singer. I did professional acting when I was a kid. I went to college and got a degree in theater and in political science. I have a dual degree. And, uh, and I, really wanted to, I really wanted to do that. It was my first love and my first passion. But my dad came to see me try out for a play once, and he said, you really need to have something to fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, I'll, I'll help you get to law school. And you know, if, if you finish law school and you want to go back to New York, do that. And Sherilyn and I met on the first day that I was in law school. And uh, she's been practicing law her whole life, as have I. But because I wanted to get married and have kids, I mean, it really wasn't an option that was available to me. But I've always loved the arts and music and theater. I had the great joy of growing up with some very famous people that you know now, who were my age that were hanging around with me when I was a kid, like Wenton Marcellus and Harry Connick and Brian Bad, who was in Mad Men, and Patricia Clarkson, who you've seen in a thousand things. New Orleans is a very culturally rich place. And I always have, um, besides just the joy of performing, I've always thought that, that art and music and culture were really critical for social cohesion. Um, and, and having creative talent around you, people that create, can create something out of nothing. Actually, whether it's in tech or in film or whatever, adds a lot of richness and beauty to our life. You can't help but be mesmerized, especially when you're in Europe, because the United States has some of it, but not a lot. The public buildings here are, are spectacular in so many ways. The architecture that you might take for granted because you, you drive by it every day um, is just magnificent, and you have to wonder, you know, what was the what was the environment back when the buildings were built that actually promoted that kind of of, of creative space? And uh, on top of that, if you want to know what the truth is about the society that you live in, you have to listen to the poets and the playwrights and the songwriters. Uh, different cultures, different forms of music, but essentially, that's where the truth is about art is a mirror not only a contemporary mirror, but a historical mirror into who we are as a people. And the world would be a much not nice place and obviously much less colorful and a whole lot more fun with a lot without art, music. And I just think that government ought to, ought to play a role in it. I'm actually a little bit ashamed because the United States has little or no public funding for art. That's not true necessarily in Europe. And, uh, and I think you can tell the difference. And I think the country would be better off if we invested more public money in it, as well as, as more private money. And I also think, by the way, um, and studies will reflect this, if you teach art and music in schools, kids actually get better at math and science too because of the way it helps your brain develop. And I, I just think it's smarter because we are essentially creative human beings. Even those of you that live in Boone, Iowa, you know, who say, who say, we don't have anything here. You know, you can, that's what artists do. They take what is there and they create something new at it. Every 
physical space in the world, every person has some level of artistic value and some natural and innate creativity. And I, I think that we should foster that a little bit more and give a little bit more freedom you know, of expression in that regard and things would be better. And I just loved it. And you know, I do, I do, I don't regret it. I made my life choices I made were the right ones for me, but I, I miss it. Well, I can, I can imagine, I mean, this is how I feel. Being able to do stuff like this, yeah. I think my training in being on stage also really lends itself well to, to doing events like this. And I can imagine it's very much the same thing in politics. When you have to give up, get up and give a speech in front of a bunch of people, there's probably very little stage well, fright, right? You know, th no, I get, I get afraid <laughs> when, when I'm about to give a speech, but it, it absolutely helped. I mean, the discipline of being a good actor requires you, first of all, to read a lot. I mean, you have to really understand the literature and know you have to read the works of Shakespeare if you're going to be an, a stage actor. Then you have to memorize. Have you ever tried to memorize a play? You should try it. Go home tonight. Just try to memorize a page and then have to recite it exactly right, you know, with people watching you and coughing, sometimes looking at their phone. I mean, and then you, once you, when you learn, when you do that extensive amount of reading and you read all of those plays and you read history and you read Chekhov and you read Ibsen and you read Shakespeare, it starts to give you appreciation for the beauty of language and then the beauty of stories and then the simplicity of stories. And then you learn when you're in front of people to determine whether or not half of you out there are going, I wish the hell he would shut up because it's boring or, or you're engaged. You, you learn how to read people. And then, of course, if you go into public life and you have to give lots of speeches, it helps you form the discipline. So everything that I learned in my theater life helped me in my political life. That's not the reason why I did it. And, and, I, and I didn't, and while I appreciate being better at the public speaking part of it, I also remind people that I essentially miss the, the, the beauty of just the performance. I thought that was... It was very edifying for me um, for some reason. I've had a hard, I've had a hard time f being able to immerse myself so completely as you do when you're an actor in a role or you're a singer singing your song. There's something about the space that you go into that allows you to forget everything else in the world that's quite mesmerizing. And if you haven't had a chance to experience it, it's hard for me to explain, but most actors will say, you know, you lose yourself in, in becoming another human being. And without being too soft and mushy, like the word community, <laughs> when you live in a world where everybody's yelling at everybody and nobody can find anything in common, the most beautiful thing is to watch an audience of different races, creeds, and colors, people who never met each other before, stand up and be moved by the same human emotion. That's when you know, you know, no matter how bad things get, we actually can figure out a way if we'll just let ourselves. And the audience of a, of a play remind you of that every night when you finish. And that's a really beautiful gift to be able to receive. Awesome. Yeah, I think that also just that learning empathy through, through becoming a character and, and, and the crowd empathizing with the people on stage in, in, this, in this act of storytelling, which is really still, uh, for us as humans, one of the most powerful ways yeah. to communicate a message. Um, I think we should send more politicians to acting school. Well, one of the things actually you find out is that, um, and if, you, if you, anybody knows anybody that's a professional in this field, you can ask them. You know, you think that what they teach you in, in theater school is how to put on characters. But most great actors will tell you that before they actually can do that, they have to strip down and take away all of their own pretenses. So it makes you look at yourself and understand all these weird things that, that have 
laid, you've laid on to your own personality, and you can't get to you know, whatever role that you're gonna play unless you strip down all of the pretenses, and that's a, that's a really kind of vulnerable space to be in because you know, when you're doing a show, you know right away whether you're doing a good job or not. Like in the world that we live in, like for work, it takes a long time for somebody to figure out maybe that you made a mistake, you know, or what you wrote or what you designed or what you created wasn't good. When you're on the stage, like you know right you know away. Yeah. They're either gonna, or they're gonna go boo. <laughs> and it's, it's, you can't hide, you know, behind anybody else. So that's a little, that's a little scary, but it's a fun, it's, it's an enjoyable thing to do. And plus, you have to learn how to work with other people because you're in a cast which means you have to be giving, and you have to share, and you have to be open, and you have to think. Those are all good qualities for you to have in your life, whether you're in politics, or whether you're running a company, or whether, whether you're just a part of it. And I just found it very useful to be part of an ensemble crew like that, and I miss it. Yeah, I, I always look back to it as well, and kind of what it's taught me going forward also as a startup founder. On that note. Plus the cast parties were good too. Yeah, that's true. Um, on that note, um, you know, being a mayor is also about getting things done, getting your hands dirty. You know, you mentioned in your book all the running around you had to do and, and problems you had to fix by yourself. And I just, that really struck a chord with me because it sounded a lot like being a startup founder. You know, you're yeah. wearing a million hats. And so I'm just to kind of leave some practical advice for our young startup founders and entrepreneurs here. How do you personally handle the day-to-day -day changes and pressures and that kind of responsibility among this controlled chaos? Well, being a mayor is very different from being a state legislator or a member of Congress or a member of the United States Senate. I've never been the president, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't ordain that being a mayor is quite as tough, but it's the, mo it's the job that's most like that. Um, and the reason is, it, it, but even saying that, mayors of certain cities are very different from anybody else. And when you're a mayor um, of any size city, you are accessible to the people in a very personal way. Unless you're the mayor of New York, or I'm not sure about Berlin, Berlin <laughs> but you know, you basically kind of go to the grocery, or you go to the cleaners, or you go to the ballpark, and we're like right, right here. And if you got something to say to me, you're gonna say it. And if I'm gonna be accountable, I'm gonna be accountable to you in real time. So there's no hiding. That's first thing, that's different. Secondly, there's no, even though each of us come to our jobs with a certain philosophy. In the United States Parliament, I'm a Democrat. Um, on the political spectrum, I'd probably be considered in the middle of the road. But I'm in the Deep South. So you may say, gosh, if that guy's a Democrat and there are 20 Democrats running, then he's specifically going to think this way about 50 issues. Mayors don't think like that. Because even though we have our own theories of life and our own ideologies, there's something that calls life that gets in the way. And essentially, we're problem solvers. And even though we bring our own ideology to it, at the end of the day, the most important thing is that we fix a problem really, really quick and we fix it the best way we can. And if the answer is antithetical to what your ideology is, but it's the thing that works, if, for example, you think government ought to fix everything, or you think government should fix nothing, the private sector thing, the answer to the problem will tell you what the right theory is. It's not the other way around. So we're not ideologically bent. We may be ideologically informed. 
And essentially, we're real-time problem solvers of crises that happen on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. So throughout the day, as the mayor of the city of New Orleans, you're a plumber. You know, you're making sure the sewer and water and drainage gets done. You've kind of fixed red lights when they break. You make sure that the streets are fixed. The police department not only has to keep people safe, but they have to be just and fair, which is a huge challenge in the United States of America right now. You actually have to be a tech expert because if you get elected mayor of New Orleans and somebody says to, come, says to you, our system just crashed. Well, what kind of system did we have? That old one a long time ago, you know, like the triplicate that you go, well, you got to be kidding me. We have to build an entire new technology system that allows us to take in information and put it out and communicate with the public in real time. Basically, you have to rebuild. We have to do in New Orleans. So you have to do all of these things at one time, and none of them wait, which means that you have to multitask. And oh, by the way, if you don't have any money, that's a huge problem. You have to build the tax base while you're trying to run it. So if being a tech startup is like that, all of you could be great mayors <laughs> of great cities around the, the country, because that's essentially what we do. You know most of government by watching your national politicians, since you're in right down the street from where the national government operates, or if you're watching American politics, the presidents and the congressmen and the senators bloviating about big issues. But most mayors are really meat and potatoes, really on the ground, just give me the facts, just let me solve the problem. Um, it's, it's really kind of being like a commander really forward in a war zone, especially if you're in a city that has high level of, high level of violence like New Orleans does, where if there's a shooting, or if there's a really kind of a difficult situation because we have millions of tourists, you have to be there as well. So you're an EMS technician, you're a firefighter, you're a policeman, and you're all those other things at once. And if that's what it's like running a tech startup, then you know, welcome to politics because all of you should run. Cool, more, more tech people in politics. Beto O'Rourke would be happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, uh, or Mr. Yang as well. Um, yeah, cool. Well, I think that's uh, about the time. I, I, I want to say thanks, but also I kind of want to know what's next for Mitch Landry. You famously decided not to throw your hat in with the other 20 Democrats. What do you got planned? I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't decided long term what I'm going to do. I had 30 years in government. It was a wonderful experience for both Cheryl and I. As I said, we have five kids. Um, most of whom are growing up. I got one left in college. Um, I'm starting a new not-for-profit called E Pluribus Unum, and I'm spending a very good bit of my time trying to visualize, design, and create um, a pathway for racial reconciliation in the United States of America. Uh, it will be headquartered in the South. It'll be a real physical space. It'll breathe in and it'll breathe out, which is to say that we'll invite people in and work with them on how to go back to the communities to actually build resilience, build cultural diversity, and then it'll breathe out. We'll have technical experts that go around the country. We'll do this by trying to uh, redefine narratives that have been falsely defined over time, which could be something as dramatic as you know asking them to rewrite the textbook so that we tell the true history of what happened in, in its broadest context, not in an effort to rewrite history, but to write it correctly and invite everybody in. We're going to do it by cultivating new leaders, um, and we're going to do it by educating people long term and hopefully take the country through a pathway of rec racial reconciliation, because my feeling about America is that 
although we are a great country and we have done wonderful things, we've also made a lot of mistakes. Um, and unless everybody's involved in the future of the country, it's going to be very hard for us to go forward together. Income inequality continues to be a real struggle. Um, my guess is that you're struggling with that here, maybe not to the, to the same degree. Climate change is going to continue to be a massive problem for the world, and it's a critical, a wolf at your door problem for the state of Louisiana. Race relations is always a necessary part of that discussion. Um, and by the way, if you're going to build a new tech industry, make sure everybody has a chance to participate in it, which means academic opportunity when kids are young in this space um, and give them an opportunity to, to grow as well. Same thing with equity uh, for women uh, in the tech sector as well. Don't make the same mistakes that we made in all of the other industries that we have. Um, and the more, again, back to the original thesis, that the more diverse we are, the more we invite everybody in, the more we go along together and not leave everybody behind, my sense is the better you know, we're all going to be. And E Pluribusunum, which is the not-for-profit that I started, is going to push that idea you know, throughout the country. Where it leads, you know, who knows? We'll see. I think it's an incredible place to leave the conversation. Great. So, well, thank you. Thank, thank you so you much. Thank you all for having me. Thank you, everyone, for coming.